to see you. Hope you're doing well this morning. Glad you're here. I've invited some of my friends, our friends, up to join us this morning. I want to make some introductions, some announcements. Uh, most of you know Jeff and Hannah Hughes, who've been leading our 180 youth ministry, junior senior high ministry for a number of years. Uh, Hannah, of course, works in our counseling center. I wanted to say that Jeff is going to shift hats here at Union Chapel, and he's going to take on a new role uh, starting this fall called Connections. And so he'll be investing himself full-time in helping people new to the church and long-standing members of the church to stay, get and stay connected in vital community. And we know he's going to do a great job with that. It's a, it's a needed area in the life of our church. And so we're excited that Jeff will be giving himself to that important, important role. And so thank you for your support with that. Most of you, some of you at least, have, have met Cole Farlow already. Cole has joined our 180 team. He'll be working primarily with junior high guys. This is, this is his new wife, Addie. They were married on May the 28th. Isn't that great? That explains that funny look on their face. They are, they are in wedded bliss. It's the honeymoon. All right, moving right along. <laughs> Brand new members of our staff, I want to introduce you for the first time. This is, this is uh, the Holtzes, Nate and Elizabeth, and their two children. This is uh, Avery and Ezekiel. And uh, needless to say, these children are adopted. Avery's been in the family for over a year now. She was born in Ohio but they just collected Avery, uh, I'm sorry, just collected Ezekiel this past week from Ethiopia. And so he's, he's new from Ethiopia. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> and, he is and he is in total shock <laughs> from the whole thing, I'm sure. We're look, looking forward to, uh, to Nate and Cole being, being involved in directing our youth ministry uh, going forward. Some of you just, and I haven't mentioned this all weekend, it just occurs to me, you know, we started 180 how many years ago? Well, 19. 19 years ago. 19 years ago. But we've had about 130,000 kids experience 180. We've baptized probably close to 1,300 middle school and high schoolers in that time. That's amazing, really. God has, God has given us a real door, an open door of influence with young people in our church, and we know that his favor continues to rest on us to reach uh, each unique generation, and so we're excited about the future as well. Uh, hey, could you believe with me the best is yet to come? Yeah, let's, let's hang on to that. God is at work, and we're excited about it. So, I uh, wanted to introduce you to these uh, folks and, and let you know what's, what's happening next and so that you can uh, know who they are, get better acquainted as time goes on. So give them another, another nice warm greeting as they come. Thanks, guys. Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you today. If you have them, we're going to look again at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes from Matthew's Gospel, chapters 4 and 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there. Last week I mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount is universally recognized by scholars throughout history, not just Christian scholars, but scholars from all the major religions of the world. 
all agree, there's consensus about this, that the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus Christ is the most important teaching in all of human history. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? In this, in this concise text from the Gospels, we find the most profound teaching in all of history. And therefore, we want to look at it. We want to contemplate it. We want to discover the truth in this important text. And of course, Jesus gave these beatitudes, these blesseds, in eight parts. The first four we discussed last week, and these relate to our relationship with God, how to best love God. And the other four relate to how we get along with one another, how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the great, the great commandment is found in the Beatitudes, to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so perhaps we can learn more from these important truths today. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading at verse 23. If you're able, would you please stand as you hear God's word. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, you can understand why. The average life expectancy in first century Palestine was 30, 32 years old. People had maladies of all sorts. They, they didn't benefit from the kinds of modern medicine that we do. And, and so people suffered, and they died. So you can imagine the effect that it would have if a, a man, a rabbi, a prophet would come through the region with healing power and everybody who got into his presence became healed. You can understand why throngs of people would follow him and be desperate to receive his touch. And so we pick up this story there in chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, you remember last week, if you were here, that I tried to encourage you. I gave you permission to, to suspend that natural doubt that, that we all have, that, that rationalization to, to, to doubt that God can do anything in any way and to suspend our unbelief so that we could embrace uh, with our sanctified imagination a scenario that went something like this, that Jesus Christ, with his little entourage, walked into Muncie, Indiana one day. And he asked where the hospital was, and these people, Jesus and his cohorts, walk on the, into the first floor of Ball Hospital, go into the first room, and Jesus starts healing people. To the next room, the next room, the next room, to the next floor, the next 
floor until everybody in the hospital is completely made whole. He empties the hospital. This takes five or six hours. And everybody is made whole and well and healed. Every disease, every infirmity, every point of pain, every malady, every emotional, psychological, and physical dysfunction completely made whole. And the word gets out. You can imagine, you can, maybe we can't imagine just how the word would spread and how dramatic and dynamic the, the culture would become with the word of this healing power. And a few days after this, a meeting is called at Schumann Stadium, the Ball State football stadium, and the place fills up with people. Tens of thousands of people from all over Delaware County and beyond the region. All of the stands are filled to overflowing. The field itself is completely full of people. There are people who have brought their loved ones and their friends who are sick and are dying and people who are crippled and people with all sorts of various emotional and psychological conditions, people with dementia, uh, nursing homes are emptied and people are wheeled into this, into this stadium. And Jesus stands up and takes the, takes the microphone and says something like this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in his presence, we not only hear his words, but we have illumination of its meaning. We, 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 we are experiencing the kingdom of God in fullness so that our minds are open and the Holy Spirit actually interprets for us the words of Jesus. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sins and believe. And people begin to surrender their lives to God, offer themselves to Jesus. And it's a wonderful and powerful thing. You know, in our lives, we see little fits and spurts of God's grace, healing grace, restoring grace, delivering grace. We see, we see it from time to time. Maybe we experience it in our own lives and we, we know that that was a touch from God. That was a God moment. That was a God thing. And we recognize it and we celebrate it. But now it seems as if the zipper of heaven has been completely opened and the glory of God fills the entire area because the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is at hand and will never be the same. And then we can imagine Jesus beginning to teach and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we get illumination on this and we realize that what Jesus is talking about is the spiritual condition that all of us live in apart from him, that we are impoverished, we are in lack, we have nothing on our ledger that suggests that we have any capacity to reunite and reconnect in our relationship with God. And so we are poor in spirit. And Jesus said, happy are you, Fulfilled are you, content are you if you are poor in spirit and recognize your need. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. And we get insight into this. He's not just merely talking about the grief that comes from losing someone or something important to you, but it's about your own sin and the grief that that causes you and the awareness that you come to because of your rebellion and sin against God has separated you in your relationship from God and it hurts you and it wounds you and it grieves you. 
And not only your own sin, but the sins of the world and the consequences of that evil unleashed in the world. And you mourn. But Jesus said, blessed if you mourn. You'll be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, illumination comes to us and we realize meekness is not weakness. It is not, it is not suffering in powerlessness, but rather meekness implies strength and power which is now submitted to God's best plan in the work of the Holy Spirit, the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And we realize that meekness is something then that doesn't push itself forward and isn't impressed with status and wealth and that it's patient to wait on God to lead and to provide and to protect. And we understand that the meek are those who have strength which is under control of the Holy Spirit and they shall inherit the earth. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And immediately we realize that hungering and thirsting after anything else except our relationship with God will not bring satisfaction, will not fulfill. And so we give ourselves to a singular purpose. We give ourselves to this one goal in life, and that is to connect authentically with God and to understand his will and his ways for our lives, to live in the best plan that he's designed for us this is how you find fulfillment in life. Blessed are you if you hunger, you become desperate for, ravenous for, right standing with God. Then you will be satisfied. Yeah. Well, in all of these ways, we see God at work. And, and while Jesus is teaching, more miracles are happening. Because a woman who's 58 years old and she's been brought from the nursing home by her daughter and she has been in a state of derangement now for about five years. She has early onset and now, now full-blown dementia and Alzheimer's. And she is unaware of who she is or where she is. But her daughter has brought her, just leading her by the hand. She's just walking aimlessly and walks into the stadium and sits down with her daughter. And in the middle of Jesus' teaching, suddenly this woman's eyes flutter and her lights come back on. And she turns to her daughter and says, why are we at the football stadium? And her daughter begins to celebrate because she has been restored to her right mind. And then not far from there is another man who has been wheeled in a wheelchair because 10 days ago he had his right foot amputated because of a diabetic sore that would not heal. And this wound was open and so they amputated his right foot and they were making plans to amputate the other. And suddenly he realizes that his, the wound on his left foot has closed up and healed and he feels strength returning to his legs. And a creative miracle also takes place and before he can even get his mind around what has happened, his foot begins to recreate and grow back onto his foot and he jumps up out of his wheelchair and goes walking and leaping. You have to suspend your unbelief for such things. This is the kingdom of God where everyone is made whole, everything crooked made straight. This is the kingdom of God where every weakness is given strength. It's amazing. And miracle after miracle is happening all throughout the crowd. But it doesn't deter Jesus because he continues to teach. And now he shifts from our relationship with God to the relationship that we have with one another. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. A man approached me not too long ago and he said to me, Pastor, he said, thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for not giving up on me. 
That's a thoughtful comment, isn't it? And I responded by saying, I'm just thankful God didn't give up on all of us or any of us, right? How many of you are thankful with me that God didn't give us what we deserved, rather he gave us what we need? Somebody, can I get a witness? Can I get, can I get, are you grateful for that? It's not his deal to give us what we've earned or what we deserve, but rather what we need. That's really good news. That's the mercy of God. That's the love of God in action. Mercy. Some of you know a great theologian of our modern day. His name is Dwayne Dog Chapman. How many of you know Dog? Dog the bounty hunter. How many of you know him? Come on, fess up. You know Dog the bounty hunter. Come on, you're not so spiritual. You don't know. Some of you are reluctant because you've had trouble with the law and you're afraid Dog's looking for you right now. <laughs> Dwayne Dog Chapman often is heard to say, where mercy is shown, mercy is given. And he's right. That's exactly what Jesus said. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's a great thing. Beth and I, I announced last week that Beth has cancer, and we're treating that right now. She's been through surgery two weeks ago, and will face some more treatment. And uh, the last couple of weeks... We've been praying together an ancient prayer that comes out of the Orthodox tradition. I want to put it on the screen for you. It's called the Jesus Prayer. And it just goes like this. Maybe you'll want to use it too. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. True story is told, a politician went in to get his picture taken for a portrait, and after he got the proofs, he wasn't happy, not happy at all. So he stormed back into the photographer's office and said, these photographs, this portrait does not do me justice. To which the photographer said, well, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> a young employee once pilfered several hundred dollars of his firm's money when this breach was, was uncovered, he was called into the office to talk to the CEO of the company, and he was, he was uh, horrified. He, kn he knew that his career was over, that legal, uh, legal charges could be pressed against him. His life was in ruins, and he walked into his boss's office, and the first question was, are you guilty of what you've been accused of doing? And he said, yes, sir, I am. And then a surprise question came from the boss and the CEO said if I leave you in your current position with your current responsibilities can I trust you to go forward and the young man was amazed by the question he said well yes sir yes sir I look I've learned my lesson you don't have to ever worry about me again I I get it and the boss looked at him and said, very well. I'm restoring you. I'm not pressing charges against you. I'm restoring you to your current responsibilities. Go back to work. And then he said, oh, by the way, you're not the first person who's been found pilfering money out of the company. 
He said, I was the first many years ago. And the mercy I received then is the mercy I extend to you now. And only by God's grace will we make it. Do you ever stop and ask the question, I wonder if, if extending mercy to this person will change my attitude about them. I wonder if rather than judging and criticizing and, and holding in, in harshness this person for their failure or their crossing over the line or, 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 or offending the boundaries, I wonder if my, my mercy and my reaction to them in a merciful way might actually bring healing to them. It might be better for them in our relationship. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Someone said, if you're climbing the ladder on the way up, make as many friends as you can, because on the way back down, you'll need them. It's a good word, because we all need mercy. Without mercy, we'll all be stuck, won't we? We'll be stuck in yesterday and our failures from yesterday and enslaved by those mistakes and failures. And once we have received mercy from God, and we all have, now we're free to give it. Each of these Beatitudes this morning, I want, to, I want to conclude with a series of questions, kind of an examination of conscience, if you will. And if you hear something that's meaningful to you or provocative to you or challenging to you, I encourage you just to grab a hold of that thought. Just grab a hold of it so you can take it home with you this week and really pray and ask God to develop the reality of that in your own heart. And maybe jot it down if you can. And these come from a woman named Doris Donnelly, and they're very thoughtful. And so I'm going to put these on the screen for you. And under this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, here are the questions. First, do I operate on a double standard of expecting mercy but not wanting to grant it? Next, do I prefer the strict law and order approach or that of mercy, tenderness, and compassion? Are there places in my life where people are suffering because of me and my unforgiving attitude? Am I devoid of a merciful spirit toward those I call enemy? And what is my attitude toward capital punishment and ex-convicts? Then second of all in your outline is found in verse 8 of Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, when the Bible talks about our heart, it's not talking about our, our, our heart muscle. It's talking about the core of who we are. It's, it's down deeper than our intellect, deeper than our emotions, deeper than our will, uh, deeper even than, than uh, old habits you know, that we've formed and patterns that we've formed deeper than all of that, right to the center of where we make decisions, from which we make choices. That, that essence, that core of who we are, that's our heart. And Jesus said, if your heart is pure, you'll be able to see God. And this is a great promise. But let me just remind you that not everybody wants to see God, because if you're running from God, you don't want to see God. If you're, if you're keeping God at arm's length, you're not interested in seeing God. Because in your own life, in your own heart, you know that you are stubborn and rebellious. You want what you want. You want your way. You want, you want it the way you like it. And so, and so you're not as interested in what God has to say. 
And, and so this tends to, tends to corrupt your heart and, and darken your heart and harden your heart. But what, what Jesus says is if your heart is pure, in other words, if you choose to move in relationship with God and lean in his direction, it will purify your heart. You'll be able to see his will and his ways. If you, if you live rightly and make good choices, it will tend to purify your heart. You can even have your heart purified in, in common daily moments. You might see a sunset that is spectacular and it touches you and you say, I, I see God in that sunset. Well, that, that purifies your heart because you can see God. Maybe it's a moment when, when you look into the face of your own child or a grandchild and you see the wonder of God's creative power and the enormous potential in that little person and it purifies your heart. You can see God or maybe it's a moment when God's grace has been extended to you and he's restored a relationship or enhanced your finances or healed your body and you see the grace of God at work and you pause and you say, that's a God thing, that's a God moment, that's a God opportunity. And it softens your heart and it purifies your heart. It helps you see God. But just the opposite is true. Poor choices and sinful living and bad behavior, that'll tend to darken your heart and cause it to be impure and you'll lose sight of God and lose sight of his ways in your life. And if you take for granted the miraculous blessings that comes to us every day of our lives, it can darken our heart and harden our heart. And so we lose sight of God. C.S. Lewis, he's my favorite author, and he said it this way. He said, it's easy to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, because only the pure in heart want to see God. And listen, that's really insightful. That's really insightful. And so may God grant us the grace of a pure heart. Here are the questions of conscience. Are you ready? Here they are. I'll put them on the screen. Am I trusting and trustful? Do I value living without pretense or am I constantly fearful that someone will take advantage of me? Am I open and honest about who I am and what I do? Do I deflect the attention and honor due to God and claim these things for myself? Have I been untrue to myself, even a little, for advancement, money, or good opinion? And last, have I failed to take time for prayer, solitude, reflection? So here's number three on your outline. It's verse 9 from Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Again, this is about relationship with others. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Leads to peace. Now listen, in our world, there are peace fakers. Let me tell you who a peace faker is. There may be a peace faker or two in the room. Listen, a peace faker is someone who will, who will seek to keep the peace no matter the cost. In other words, you will avoid conflict at all costs. Now you know in your relationships or in your family, there are issues. There, are, there, there is conflict. There's, there are things that have been said, things that have been done that have left people divided and hurt. And so when you're asked, how's your family? Is your, is, is your marriage peaceful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're getting along fine. How about, how about with your kids? All your kids, you know, are you at peace with them? Uh, 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 yeah, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're doing just fine. It's good. But you're a peace faker. It's counterfeit peace. It's not real peace. Because you avoid getting into the hard stuff. Leaning into the conflict. Leaning into the issues that have caused the division. And so you just won't go there. And because you don't have enough courage to go there, there's, not, there's no real peace. a peace faker. Then there are peace, peace breakers on the other end of the spectrum. We know these people, they are, they are violent and they are controlling and they're manipulative and they're constantly driving a wedge between people. And, and they're nasty that way. They break the peace. They upset the peace. And maybe you know people like that. But in between, in between is a healthy place. And these are the peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are these people. These are, these are people who face into the issues. They, they confront. They confront the conflict. And they process it. And they're, they're self-aware enough to realize that many times the lack of peace is their own responsibility. So they're, they're willing and courageous enough to assign blame even to themselves in order to understand best why we've gotten into this mess. And then they're wise enough to seek God in prayer and to seek wise counsel and to seek God's word to discover new avenues that lead toward peace. So adjustments are made and attitudes are shifted and, and, and new traditions are formed that lead to peace. We, we have names for peace fakers. We call them cowards. We have names for peace breakers. We, we could just call them terrorists. We have a name for peacemakers. Let me tell you what we call them. Leaders. Real leaders. Peacemakers. Jesus had an even higher honor to label them with. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The people of God, people of faith. Man, what a great handle. What a great. Let me tell you about uh, Mary Brenner. She's a peacemaker. Let me tell her story. It's just inspired to me. Maybe you'll find it inspiring. This is a story written about her, and it, and it reads, A riot raged in the La Mesa prison in Tijuana, Mexico. Thousands of inmates, male, male prison, all male prison, Thousands of inmates battled guards with bottles and rocks while the guards shot back with guns until a small woman in her 70s walked into the middle of the war, raised her hands, and signaled for quiet. Calm fell on the prison. That woman was Mary Brenner, who was raised in Beverly Hills. There she lived what she called a glamorous life until she found Christ and followed him in a new direction. Now she's known as Sister Antonia. She dresses in a nun's habit and lives in a sparse 10-foot cell inside the prison. She moved there 25 years ago to live among the murderers, thieves, and drug dealers. Sister Antonia has poured out her life for these prisoners, nursing their wounds, getting them eyeglasses and medicine, caring for their families, even washing their bodies for burial. Loving them doesn't mean she ignores her crimes. In fact, in her words, she said, there isn't anyone who hasn't heard my lecture. They have to accept that they've done wrong. They have to see the consequences. They have to feel the agony. But I do love them all so dearly. She refers to each prisoner as her son. Though she lives in a prison, the prison does not live inside of her. 
Her friends and the inmates all describe her incredible energy and joy and hopefulness. She describes it as simply living out her calling. In recent interviews, she said, and I quote, I wouldn't trade this cell for any place in the world. (laughs) Who are these people? Who is this woman? She's a peacemaker. She's a peacemaker. She is a daughter of God. She belongs to God. She's a representative of God. How inspiring. Let me just remind you, friends, only those who have experienced God's peace have any capacity to spread peace. You can't give away what you don't have. And until you have peace with God, you can't expect to be a peacemaker. Well, peacemakers are among us. Yes, they are. Leaders among us. Sons and daughters of God among us. And they're evidenced by your willingness to heal your marriage, to close up old infected wounds, lay aside old grudges, lean into new opportunities, thawing out old cold hearts, warming them, giving wiggle room, giving grace, giving mercy. These are the sons of God. Here's the examination. You ready? Here are the questions. Watch for them. First, am I eager for reconciliation or do I antagonize and yearn for revenge? Next, do I think apologizing is a sign of weakness? Am I willing to be a bridge in family and community arguments? Do I support violence in films, television, and sports? Have I studied peace and taking initiative to stop violence and war? Have I read and do I support the many official church statements against the arms race, nuclear weapons, and war? Do I see the Christian vocation as one of peacemaker? And is my presence a source of peace to those around me? And then fourthly, lastly, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now let me, let me just remind you of something. Serving Jesus is not safe. It's not always popular. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is not safe. Now it's relatively safe here in Muncie, Indiana. I've been preaching the gospel in a public way, in a public place like this for 35 years right here right here at Union Chapel. But I I haven't been threatened. I haven't been arrested. I haven't been dragged out of here. So it's relatively safe. Now now I have people who don't like me. Let me just scroll through that list a minute. (laughs) Give me a second. Yeah, well, we don't have time to go through that list. Anyway, it's risky business to represent Jesus. You stand up for people who, who are unfairly treated, unjustly treated in the culture. You stand up for them. Somebody, somebody will hate you for that. You stand up against communal evil in the world. And folks might, folks might kill you over that. I'll just remind you that the guy who stood up and said, Blessed are you when men persecute you, say all evil against you because of me. 
the prophets suffered before you. And implicit in his comments now, in, in hindsight, we know that he too was going to suffer for standing up for what's right. He was going to die. You know, in America right now, we have, we have all kinds of social angst, all kinds of division. It's political division. It's philosophical. It's, it's racial. I mean, it's raised its ugly head again. Let me, just, let me just give you a little perspective. Anytime there is perceived peace and harmony and unity in the culture, you know, we're going along and it seems like we're all getting along pretty well, that is a very, very thin veneer of reality. And it only takes just a little bit of conflict to pop through that veneer, that, that mirage, which is what we perceive to be, oh, we're all getting along. And up pops all kinds of bias and prejudice and hatred and, and bigotry and all kinds of nasty stuff that's resonant in the human condition. And so it's popped up its head again because of the political and other uh, activities in our culture right now. And let me just say with regard to racial tension, uh, racial tension needs, needs adjustment. It needs help. It needs, it, it needs correction. We, we, it needs healing. Now, that, that's obvious. That's, that's just common sense. And I would just say personally, philosophically, that, that people on both sides of whatever side you take have work to do. Everybody's responsible for this. Everybody of every culture, every color has responsibility for this kind of division. And everyone needs to work. Everyone needs God's help and grace. Now, with that said, there's a letter that I pull out of my file when the racial issues, especially a black-white racial kind of tension, rears its head in our culture. And this letter comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was written on Easter week, 1963. And much like the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul from prison, Dr. King wrote this letter from a Birmingham jail. And he wrote it to a group of other clergy, so other preachers that he knew, some friends of his in the clergy. And as I say, I pull this letter up when things, when things get a little testy so that I can get perspective. And it just helps me stay on balance. And, and, to, and to think thoughts that are, that are important thoughts. And so let me, read, let me read from Dr. King's letter. These are just the last two paragraphs of this letter to these clergy. And listen to the content and listen to the poetry. Listen to his brilliance as he writes. He said, one day the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths, the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses and who responded with ungrammatical profundity to one who inquired about her weariness when she said, My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. They will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders, courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience sake. One day the South will know that 
When these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King. Now, those of you who know your history from 1963 will know that five years later, Dr. King would live into the martyrdom that the Eighth Beatitude predicts as a place of companionship with Jesus. And if you dare to follow Jesus, counting the cost of discipleship, it could very well mean that you too might have to pay an ultimate cost for following him. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Well, here's our examination. You ready? Last one. We'll be done. Ready? Here it is. Do I criticize or ridicule those who suffer for their beliefs? Am I embarrassed to step out of the mainstream to stand up for a principle? This next one got me. Who are my heroes? Are there any among them who gave their lives without vengeance for what is true? Would I do the same? Do I worship security and fear costly discipleship? Have I called myself Christian without making my life a witness to the teachings of Jesus? And lastly, have I openly supported those who defend justice and give their lives for peace? That's strong, isn't it? It's pretty strong. I know that's touched all of us. Take these thoughts with you, will you? Don't let them go quickly or easily. Hang on to them for some hours and some days. Let the Holy Spirit have his way in your life. Now let's conclude with prayer. Lord, I will make the confession for all of us. When we think about the incredible truth and mandate of the Beatitudes, here's our prayer, Lord. We all have tried and we've all failed. We admit it. And we admit it right here and right now publicly. We've tried and failed. We realize that living a kingdom life cannot be made easy. It, it cannot be made different than what your life and your words imply. It cannot be made popular. It cannot be made easy to swallow. It can't be reduced to a bunch of good suggestions and easy steps. It just won't work. So we pray today that you would give us ears to hear and willing hearts 
to embrace the standards of the kingdom of heaven in our relationship with you and our relationship with others. We remind ourselves, oh God, that blessed, happy, satisfied, fulfilled are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. The pure in heart. The peacemakers. And the persecuted. Now give us courage, O oh Lord, to hear these truths and make the application. Help us to count the cost and then to boldly walk in it. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us now?